Thank you again for being here. Thank you for being part of the soil community, part of the regenerative soil community. Because the thing is, our soil didn't get here by just accident. Our soil was no accident. Uh, there is a natural progression and predilection built within nature for it all to build soil and for soil itself to become better and better and better over time. And th that's really what we're talking about here is that we want to re get re-engaged with what is possible for us. And, and when we partner with nature, incredible things are possible. All right. Thank you for being here. All right, so today we're talking about biology is the key to all fertility. We were talking last week about the carbon cycle. If you didn't get to watch that, you'll be able to watch the replay of that. So what if we sterilize the plants and soil for over 100 years? Like what if we just decided to ruin our, 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 our plants and soil? Like, you know what I mean? Well, you would end up mixing these two things, right? Because the sky is supposed to be oxygen rich and it's supposed to be carbon rich in the soil. And if we sterilized it using oxygen, because, you know, the, 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 the hydrogen peroxide, the um, oxygen cleaners, the oxidative things that we use to uh, whiten teeth, like all these different oxides, right, are oxygen. Oxygen is a liberation of energy. So we're mixing these two and it's literally a, a chemistry reaction where we're gassing off our carbon and our nitrogen killing the the fundamental building blocks of what our soil is so the soil organics gone oxidation is the loss of energy and moisture and organic matter all of these things so that sterilizes the soil you remove those things and you sterilize the soil and then they leave it bare so we've been doing this program for over a hundred years and we do it for large stretches of uniformity. And if you know monoculture, you know that isn't good. So it's large areas of sterility. Um, and then there's, there's pesticides we use, fungicides, insecticides. All this kills the soil life and destroys the soil organic matter. All of it. And the harsh chemicals, the, the, the mechanism by which they do it is oxidizing. So all this is oxidative stress. Soils are made of fungi, you know, that's 30 to 50%. So for the fungicides are going to kill that. And when it rains, and especially when fields are planted up to the edges of the riparian areas, you get die off. And that's the suffocation of not just the fish, but of the life and the, 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 the stagnation and death of the cycles. Everywhere we, we practice tillage, agriculture, we cause desertification and eutrophication. And I mean, the whole shebang, the tillage, the spraying, the poisons, the purified salt fertilizers that disassociate in water. The purified, I mean, purified nitrogen is literally lonely because organic matter is, is a grouping of nitrogen carbon in a balance so that it's stable. Because what do you use to break down the compost and get it hot? Your nitrogen. So you want all these things to be in balance, but if you bring in pure nitrogen, it's going to look for the carbon to do a mini composting event with. And that's usually your humus, your compost, or your, I mean, your soil organic matter 
And and then it destroys that. And while it looks like your plants are doing well, you've destroyed your soil. Desertification is the long scale story of the past 10,000 years as well. So the Middle East, I mean, it once was the Fertile Crescent, you know, um, Egypt, the Sahara, that whole area was once a savanna. The, the, the Mediterranean was the breadbasket of Europe before the soils were destroyed. And so a great book on this is actually Dirt, Erosion of Civilizations. It's a research-based, archaeologically based, and in the literature and the history, like all together, it's, it's wonderful. It co covers so many different things. But it shows a, a very thorough proof for how the world used to be and how everywhere we've gone, we've created desertification, except in a few certain instances and two certain someones collected those instances and tried to map commonalities between them and called it permaculture, right? So, so that's the thing is that we have 12 million hectares of land being lost to desertification a year. And we have 10,000 years of that also on our backs. So when people feel pressurized around soil, pressurized around farming, this is why. We talk about the Fertile Crescent. Where did that fertility and water go? It was the birthplace of agriculture in the Middle East and for the West. So in other words, that's where the first deserts for us were. And so this is not a new problem. But now we have only 55 harvests of topsoil left globally because we've expanded globally and now we've got global problems globally. And we've always had a place to run to. Europe was facing like, all these problems and internal collapse and lack of soil, lack of fertility. And they went and did mercantilism and then colonialism, imperialism, all of that because they destroyed their soils and had no, uh, they had no native soil left and no native productivity to keep up with their demands. And so they, this is the same thing where the Americas were another place for us to like start doing things again. And then, there's always this trend, this trend of like, oh, now we got chemical. Like if you read Grapes of Wrath, you remember, right? So they killed the soil with cotton. Remember pre early depression time period, they had killed the soil with, with, um, with cotton. They were introducing chemicals and tractors and that was the savior. So this is the pattern. And Plato described it as going up the hills and in and in, 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 in logging off the hills first and then farming the hills and pushing all the soil down to the valley and then coming down to the valley and then farming it until it drew the soil into the watershed into the water and then they go back up and do it again over time and so this we've always had a place to escape we've always had this thing that you probably remember from history class where we let fields go fallow we let it go wild and let nature fix it that was when there was wilderness around our fields in Europe. And literally the wild animals would travel in and sleep in that area and use it. And, and they would refertilize it in all sorts of different ways, but it's because they were surrounded by actual forest. And so we are in a process of recognizing how bad things really are, but also what we actually can do because we have things we can do. So let's just think of, for instance, what would happen if we sterilized your body? 
A lot of us think that we're like sterilizing ourselves with soap and stuff. Not quite. Um, and you're, you, we, we, we have a biome on our skin and it's very vital. So sterilizing inside and out is what I mean in this metaphor. Well, we'd all die without bacteria and fungi because they're what releases the nutrition in our guts for, for like in our digestion. Plants rely upon microbes too. Animals rely upon microbes just like we do. We all rely upon microbes. And some of them, whoo, some of them are literally vital for all life, like single species of microbes that are amazing and do wonderful things. They are the linchpin for all the cycles associated, well, associated with it, but but it crosses so many different bandwidths and cycles and connects so many different things. I'm thinking rhodosodomonas plus, just prevalent sulfur bacteria. Here we go, right? <laughs> you know, and so all this means our future relies upon microbes. Our past did and our future did. And the reason, one of the main reasons I see that reason why we're, we're so sick is because we're missing the actual components for our plants and ourselves to properly digest and properly protect ourselves immunologically. The microbes within us and within the soil unlock the nutrients for people and plants to live. And I would also add within the plants. So all reproductive, and all reproduction and all health and all life is pr predicated on assessing, accessing those nutrients. So if you can't get those nutrients, none of this is happening. We're not having animals. We're not having plants. Everything is released by the microbiology. Everything is cycled by the microbiology. Even if you're like, oh, that's indirect. Oh, that's that. And it all starts in the soil and water. So when we, we want all these things, we want the fruit, we want, you know, the healthy animals, we want all these macro solutions, but just like, you know, all the early creation myths and all the, the, the different religions of the world, we came from clay or dust or dirt. We came from the soil and from this place, we will go. And from this place, all potential for all systems and all fertility is coming. But the bad news is the microbiome of the world is so severely depleted that it, we, it needs our help. But wait, before I get any further, who am I? All right. <laughs> well, I'm Matt Powers. I was a musician. I was a New York City musician and uh, I became Mr. Powers as a, uh, because my, my wife had a health crisis. We had our first child. She wanted to recover with her mom and cancer kept coming back. And so I had to get stable healthcare and I had to get a stable job and all those sin things. And so I quit the music industry. I still do my music and my soundtracks and play with my son, who's way better than I ever was. And, but, but I became a teacher and it, it went in and it, you can't bring that out. It's sustained that you become. <laughs> That's the thing is when you're a teacher, you're always a teacher. So I became a teacher. Initially, I was a sub. Then I was a full-time English teacher. Then I started teaching permaculture. Then I started writing curriculum. And it's been a wild ride. I've become a citizen scientist in that process. My family has grown up. You've seen videos of my little boys. They are big boys now. And, you know, I've had over 24 different publications in the past eight years. 
And I'm an author and educator, entrepreneur, soil expert, seed farmer, and family guy. And I love it. So all of it has been to create that bridge to the future. I was a sophomore English teacher. So I was all about preparing for the next stage in life, for, for, for taking that leap. And I watched where everyone was leaping. And I was like, um, I don't know if that college program is actually going to help you at all. And then it was like, like my kids had very limited options. It was either get into trouble, join the military, or 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 they could go to the local college, the local community college. But some people got into scholarships, some people got into good schools, no doubt. But it was it was not everyone. And that's the thing. It, it I recognized that they weren't leading anywhere, not to a future that was regenerative. And so I started making curriculum to make that bridge possible. And today, you know, over a decade later from that original idea and concept, I, well, actually, yeah, it's way over a decade because, yeah. And I've been working with high schoolers a long time. And I, I really wanted them to have jobs that were ethical, that could make them money, that could reestablish the local economy. And that's why I teach this. That's why I show people how to do it, how to prove it how to to make it rigorous uh, so that they can make it their business. They could make it the, the fundamental to the way they farm, run an orchard, graze their animals, because it's all possible, especially from the perspective of soil. So let's talk about the paradigms of plant nutrition, because a lot of people get stuck here. The traditional farm aspect is like, you need those, those salt fertilizers because They'll disassociate in water and they're the ions you need at that time period. And you've set your pH with chemicals. And so it'll go. It's it's all a lot of forcing. It's like strong arming your soil and plants into what doing what you want and force feeding them and maybe a little bit of waterboarding mixed in. But that's that's the traditional way of doing it. The plant has no discretion. You're forcing it all in. And and then there's a, a another perspective that that came in that was you know we just need to let the plants have full like they can do it all we just need to give them the microbes and they'll do everything they're in charge they and the thing is those paradigms are too extreme things are a little different so let's talk about the way plants actually feed when we look at photosynthesis we notice that it plays right into the paradigms of the mineral science, of the chemistry science. Hey, we're talking cations and anions, just like they would um, in high school ag, in like FFA or something, right? You're like, that's crazy, but that's literally what the roots do. And they don't do it in a way where they're 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 pulling it in solution. They're releasing specifically energetically charged compounds to displace those cations or anions from off the minerals around them to, to, to then absorb them because they'll be free. So, so and then the, the added craziness to this is, of course, protons, that's what you measure acidity in, and hydroxide, that's what you measure alkalinity in. So what your plant is releasing is constantly changing your pH. So let's let, let let's think about that. They're constantly making that choice, that decision. Sometimes it's a choice. Sometimes it's they're just doing it to survive. 
by using those 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 products out of their roots to drive it to the pH that they need to be in to get the minerals that they need. So they can be expending a lot of energy. This is like um, in a video game where the your only way of movement is your gun and you like shoot yourself around. Have you, you seen these sort of games? That is like this. So they, they it's a dual function. So they have to be able to like navigate where they are with that, but it's also how they get their nutrients, you know? And so it can take way more energy if they're not in the right pH range to get what they need. Does that make sense? They might have to expend so much energy to get to where they need because the soil is not conducive uh, to, to be able to get those microbes off. I was just thinking conducive, conductive, right? <laughs> I mean, it works. It really works because we're talking electrical here. So, and, and like just to further that, we can have a like three pH units of difference and that's huge because it's logarithmic. And then as we add protons, we're adding energy. That's reductive. And that's reducing in terms of chemistry, meaning it's building in energy. And that's what acidity is. It's pretty wild. It's pretty. And, and then if you're like, wow, you know, I need something to ground this. Here you go. When you add ammonium, Look at all that, those plus, see the pluses there? It's uh, four plus and there's no zeros. I mean, um, um, O's, there's no O's. So it's, there's no oxygen. It's all protons. It's nitrogen with all those protons attached to it. And you were like, the protons from that were releasing cations and making it more acidic. That's why ammonium makes it more acidic. See, you can figure this out once you have the pieces, then nitrates and O3, uh-oh, that's a lot of oxygen. And oxygen is going to get you anions, but you need four molecules of H2O for to process every molecule of nitrate. It alkalinizes the plant, it oxidizes and alkalinizes the soil. It's costly. And it's the, the oxygen. The oxygen is going to liberate, rip off the energy like we talked about. And that means, my friends, that if your plant is not happy and it's releasing hydroxides, it is hurting your soil. And if you're like, oh, well, my soil is so acidic, it's a problem, then it's not hurting your soil. we got to keep perspective in here. But most of us, it's hurting our soil. So like I said, they displace things. This is a chart that I made to show that. And a lot of people talk about the soil food web. So the plant roots release sugars, they say, but it's way more than sugars. I, I mean, I was talking about malic acid uh, and citric acid being released by roots, as well as certain uh, amino acids that would feed Pseudomonas florensis and have it come in as an endophyte because of that. It's not even attracted to sugars or root exited sugars. So, so we have to be careful about generalizations. That's why I teach what I teach. And so these roots, they're releasing exudates and there's a broad range of exudation. 
And there's a caveat to all that too, that we'll get into in a minute. And the bacteria and fungi are feeding upon it. The protozoa are feeding upon them. The nematodes are feeding upon all of them. And the manures from the protozoa and the nematodes feed the, the plant roots and help build the soil organic matter. Microarthropods are shredding things and opening things up for the bacteria and fungi to work on it and cascades of trophic cycling. So this is what most people know and love. This is the soil food web. And this is the most updated version. The arrows are functional. This really allows for deeper comprehension uh, than, than any of the other charts that are currently available. And this is what most people understand. I just simplified it here. It's those exodits. And then it's the manures from the microbes that feed the plant. But, and, and then also it's all making organic matter, all the different pathways. And so they're all fungal. They're all fungal and bacterial. They're all microbial. All right, so rhizobium. So some of the microbes will harbor themselves inside the root, root nodules. And rhizobium um, are just one of a whole group of rhizobia. And so there's Brady rhizobium, which shares nitrogen laterally during the lifespan of the plant. Rhizobium does not. So if you've heard Elaine Ingham say that like, the, the nodules will share laterally nitrogen during the lifespan of the plant. And then you'll hear Carol Depp say the opposite, be like, no, nitrogen fixing, the nodules have to die off and rot, and then the nitrogen is released. They're different microbes. And you can actually have a nodule with multiple types of rhizobia inside it. So these kind of nuances until you know, I did the reading and gathered all the stuff and then really organized it, you know, folks just had no idea about. And and when you look at them, you can see that there's a difference <laughs> quite often between these different forms. And then mycorrhizal fungi, uh, it really looks like this. Uh, this is a stage though, that that center part where where you see it going around the edge and then the other part to the to the right where it's all lit up, those are different stages of the process. One where it's initially getting its way around and then the other where it's starting to pump phosphorus in. That's where it's lit like that. You can see those cells that are lighting up because they're getting phosphorus pumped in. You can see the cells that are darkened because that's actually the, the mycorrhizal fungi that is senescing and the plant will reabsorb that, that, that fatty. It's pretty amazing. They will reabsorb all of that. And it's, it's a bonus. It's actually stored energy for the plant. So there's this virtuous cycle between a muscular mycorrhizal fungi and the plant that we'll get to at some point, uh, maybe next week. Um, but, but it's amazing when you pair things, what their synergy creates, because most people don't realize that there's specific mycorrhizal fungi and there's specific species of bacteria that together uh, have a synergy. So like whether it's a Zotobacter, uh, a Zotobacter or Pseudomonas florensis or even uh, Bacillus subtilis, all of them have a specific pairing and situation in which you would use them. And maybe it's in succession. Maybe it's it's when you do the inoculant at the same time. So, so it really just depends. I talk about pairings in my book, Regenerative Soil, and I go into way more depth into it in the, the new course, Regenerative Soil Microscopy that I'm filming right now. And then 
you can see in the manual lighting technique as well the the the, the fungal um hyphae and then oh i went backwards and then endophytes so this is a pumpkin hair that's you know those those spiky white hairs on the pumpkin seedling that's also in the squash there's microbes inside of it and the red is usually associated with photosynthetic activity so there might be photosynthesizing bacteria inside the hairs which makes sense since we're talking about how Rhodocidomonas palustris is one of the most abundant and common endophytes on top of being found in manure lagoons, on top of being found in EM and being so useful in EM and feeding on light, oxygen, CO2, carbon, sugars, raw energy, and then also doing what the plant roots did, demonstrate doing what plant roots do that I demonstrated with that image where they bombard with energy, the protons, and get things to release. Rhodocidomonas plustris does that as well. So it's really important to like have all these things mapped out. And so when you look at these different images and these 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 parts of your plant, um, you recognize what they are. So all the examples at the stoma, but all the examples of stomata that are just like that, they're all over the place that are also inoculated. Uh, there's some that you can see they've got that that wink to them that's the that's the fungi and that's the phosphorus the brightness and so we know from the nitrogen cycle that endophytic fixation is happening in the leaves all the time but there's more we have the rhizophagy cycle so are you guys seeing how like everything is like linking together how there's microbes every juncture every step of the way i hope so so the bacteria and fungi they, they they actually feed on those exudates at the root tip, and then they get pulled through the meristem cells as the exudates are reabsorbed. So up to 90% of exudates are reabsorbed by the root, which makes sense. Why would they lose that resource without any guarantee of knowing if there's microbes there? So they put out a shotgun blast of generalized exudation. They draw in the microbes and then the microbes then put out different responses, different triggers and hormones to get the plant to respond. And their endophytes, the ones that survive that, and the endophytes are the ones that can, that release nitrogen to in order to survive. So they they get past this stage. This stage is where everyone else gets destroyed or almost destroyed. They're outer. They lose their cell walls. They release electrolytes. They're bombarded with superoxide. So they're oxidized. Again, the loss of energy is the oxidation. And so this is how plants are feeding on our compost teas. This is the actual pathway that all things have hijacked and, and used. So this is primary. This comes before mycorrhizal fungi. This happens with or without mycorrhizal fungi. Mycorrhizal fungi's relationships are dependent on there being mycorrhizal fungi. This happens immediately upon uh, uh, roots leaving the seed. This is uh, seen everywhere all over the world in plants. And they reabsorb 90% of the exudates. So the idea of it being cakes and cookies only makes sense if, if it's Hansel and Gretel. 
And then, like I said, they're releasing nitric oxide. And so they're giving nitrogen to bond with that superoxide and it turns it into nitric oxide, which feeds the plant and stimulates the root hairs. So without root hairs, I mean, without this stimulation and the, the rhizophagy cycle, you don't have root hair growth. And this is what it looks like. The root hairs actually expel the bacteria that survives this process after they regrow their cell walls and they just look, look, look just like that. It's something we all can see. It's something we all can verify very easily. There's a simple stain that you can get on Amazon and a miraculous metabolic drug. Uh, it's methylene bloom. And you can see it being pushed out through the pores. So plants are active. Yes, that was correct. But they're also passive and reactive. So they're they're literally releasing exudates because they can't help it. They can't turn off the sun. So they're going to be making sugars from photosynthesis regardless. And if they can't handle their sugars, they will release monosaccharides, simple sugars. And this is why yeasts are so useful in plants. Yeasts are the way that plants control their sugars and also recycle them and start them over again when there's too many. So this is why, I mean, it's amazing what plants can do. So I, they, they, but they have, to, they, they are not physiologically one of these things. They are all of these things. And that's the thing. It's been like one or the other people are like, well, they're passive or they're active and it's no, they're all that. And it's what it depends on what we're talking about. So the microbes are being digested. They're being stripped and restored. They're being forced to fix nitrogen and they're being partnered with and they're being beneficially coexisted with. It's all happening all the time. And it's really important to recognize that that process of like the microbes, like being fed upon by the nematodes and then the nematode manure being there for the root and magically, where's time in that equation? Hmm. Where's time in that equation, huh? Right? We have to recognize and, and then place, right? Nematodes are all over the place. So, so we have to recognize that we have to have that work done, the soil food web cycling done before the plant root arrives. So we want those manures to have been built up and cycled and released before our roots arrive there. Important to think about. So plants rely upon biology for their immune systems. This is the plant health pyramid. So the bottom two are mineral. The top two are biological. They need the microbes for the top two. So we can, I mean, like this is why farmers were able to get away with doing minerals and getting their minerals just right for one and two. But until they understood the biology, they were always going to face certain pest problems. And so the endophytes, they are in the phloem of the plant. And the phloem is right there. And you can see it right there. We are relying upon plants and the microbes are inside the plants helping them. So we all reply, rely upon microbes for our digestion. So the question really is, do you wanna partner with biology to get the best soil, the best 
plants, the best foods, the best results. Let's talk about some soil biology profiles because this really gives you a window into the world that I'm in where we talk about the individual microbes, minerals, ions, enzymes, linking the micro to the macro in such a way that we can take action and we can see the results and prove the linkages because otherwise it's just um, hoping that it will go well and then never really looking too closely at it. Ah! And that's a lot of places. That's where people, a lot of people start. I mean, that's, I, I did organic farming and gardening, you know, and, and things are different now. We have the ability to make plants achieve their highest level of genetic expression. And it comes down to the microbes and like that plant health pyramid, the microbes are described on the videos that John Kemp made around that, even in his paid course as robust. They don't have names. They don't have specific families. They don't have anything other than robust attached to them. So all that lead up, all that science, all that research, and he, there's no microbes names. So that, I want to fix that. So let's talk some, about some endophytes. They're the ones doing that. They're releasing ethylene for root hair growth. Um, and if you have no microbes, you have no root hair growth. So that's a, a tip off. <laughs> you have to provide nitric oxide or dye is what Dr. James F. White has said. So thus endophytes entering the root must be able to release nitrogen. And a lot of them are nitrogen fixers. So it opens up this whole thing about the word fix, pulling it out of the atmosphere. Because the thing is, they're pulled in there and sometimes they come out through those root hairs, but other times we're finding them in the plant trichomes along the stem and on the hair of the leaf. And so they're being circulated and they're if they're in the trichomes, they are fixing nitrogen from the air. So it's important to like have that fluid understanding and then you have the whole doorway of, are they just different forms of the things that we just were looking at in the roots? Because that's another conversation. And it triggers gravitropic response in roots. So they go down, it directs them down. It triggers root hair elongation and increases root branching, increases root shoot elongation. So it's good. But there's so much more. Um, and then bacteria. They produce um, no waste. So you have to cycle them for them to be valuable. But they are the primary nutrient source for the soil food web. So if you got a ton of like nematodes and protozoa and like testate amoebae, and there's like very little bacteria, you're going to hit a wall very soon. And you need to add something that will feed the bacteria, like, like a simple sugar or something like that, that will boost that up or bring in another inoculant. Um, if it's, if it's, if it's something that you're brewing. And so they're primarily simple sugars. Molasses is what people have always used to like promote it. Uh, specific bacteria evolve symbiotically with plants. So when we go through individuals, that's what we're talking about. So the categories of bacteria and their function and form, there are many types of bacteria. We're only focusing on a select few here though. The plant growth promoting rise of bacteria. This is bacteria that lives in the root zone. There's phosphorus solubilizing bacteria in that area. And so they unlock the phosphorus and a lot of these partner directly with specific arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. There's there's actual, there's fungi that actually partners with rhizobium that increases the nitrogen fixation. 
there if you can imagine it there's like a microbe that does it that's the amazing thing about all of this diazotrophs that's a fancy name for nitrogen fixer and they are everywhere in everything they're part of decomposition they're part of living inside plants endophytes they're part of cycling rhizobia like we talked about they're a larger family and they're primarily responsible for all global nitrogen fixation. They're attracted to root hairs by plant exudates, and they can persist for 1.5 years in the soil-free living or in your compost because they aren't destroyed in the digestion of animals and they aren't destroyed in the heat of compost. In fact, they're a primary root of decomposition. And these charts, these are from regenerative soil. I have all the microbes written out. Um, you can see rhizobium species right there, symbiotic right there uh, in the center. And so all of these microbes participate in this. And look, it is giving energy as it does this. So, so it, it's all a part of this energetic exchange. And those extra H pluses equal extra cations. So you get even more. This is what I mean by synergistic. They're doing things in stacks and they're exponentially growing. So when people are saying they're doubling their yields by following the things that I'm teaching, this is why. They have way more gas in the tank when it comes to these, these, these larger uh, growing events and farms. And, and it, when we see that everything's linked and we attend to everything, you get a unified result. And there's so much about being unified in the strength of our body. Uh, it's the same way with, with the soil, same way with the, the cycles. So we know about this, but it's not all sugars. Rhizobium, um, it, it partners with, um, it partners with the soil roots. It partners with mostly legumes, but it turns nitrogen into ammonia, glutamine and amino acid and uretes and nitrogenous substance. So, it's it's not all just like we're we're trading and we're getting the results of thing. There's a direct relationship that can be formed, and it looks like this. This is from this is a cowpea, and this is a clover root nodule, and the glowing bacteria there form, forming the tetrads. That that is the rhizobia, in this case is rhizobium, a type of rhizobia. And let's talk about actinobacteria. This is something that often gets a bad name. It looks just like mycorrhizal fungi. It has hyphae and spores. Um, it, it, it has hyph it has septa, but it, it, it allows movement between them. It can be translucent, it can be darker brown. Uh, or tan, and it's non-uniform, non-straight, but at times it can be pretty straight, uh, but it's non-uniform, and it's often filled with bacteria, and that's actually a good sign because when these fungi that are decompositional, when they're full of bacteria, you know that they've got their own food source so that they won't attack your plant. It dominates the alkaline range, um, but when we're talking about Specifically, two-thirds of actinobacteria out there is going to be streptomyces, which is an endophyte, plant growth-promoting rhizobacteria, and the second most composting, uh, common microbe in all composting and soil. Uh, 
So when we say actinobacterial is dominant here, it is, but streptomyces is a range of pH four to nine. So we have to recognize that as the largest pH range of any bacteria. So you're gonna see it. It's just about it being dominant versus it being in balance. And it fulfills a lot of the roles that fungi fulfill. So when you've got your hot compost and you turn it and then suddenly you see all this white hyphae and you're like, oh no, that's bad. Hold on. That, that actinobacteria is not bad. The fact that it's hot is bad. Does that make sense? So people are like, oh, I see actinobacteria. I got too hot. My pile is now gassing off carbon and nitrogen. Yeah, that's bad. The actinobacteria got associated with that and got told it was bad. It's an endophyte. It's vital. And it's not only that, it's the second most common bacteria you'll encounter everywhere. So, and it's the most complex bacteria ever doc got documented. So, we have to like recognize that it's ubiquitous, it's vital, it's a saprophyte, it's an endophyte. Notice the saprophyte endophyte connection. Rhizobia is the same way. Um, there's a few of these. And these dominant ones like rhizobia, like actinobacteria, streptomyces, they are cycling constantly. Once we get them into our systems, our soil systems, they don't leave. Just like once you get to a certain level of with no-till and you've done enough inoculation and you've checked it with the microscope to make sure that it's full, you, you get those root fragments from last year inoculating your plants faster than any inoculation you can add. And so th th there's a lot of incredible things that can happen, but we have to recognize what we're looking at in the frame of reference and not get things confused, not demonize things. So you can see the bacteria inside it. You can see that there's septa. You can see that it's not uniform, but this is good. This is streptomyces. It has conidia spores. And so people are like, ah, spores, ah, but, but it's good. So these microbes, you know, they, the people in the biofertilizer and inoculant community know. Notice it says azospirillum, um, er, uh, <clears throat> herbospirilla, all these things are those caveats that I've been talking about. So there's biofertilizers that are in the groups with the bad things. Or they look like the bad thing in the way they move or their shape. Azospirillum is common in biofertilizers. You might see it and think you've got spirilla and freak out. That's why I'm telling you about it. So if you see it there, be prepared to see that. So it produces plant hormones like IAA, which is indolacetic acid, and gibberellins and cytokine-like substances that protect the plant from stress, both abiotic and biotic. And it's considered a plant growth promoting rhizobacteria and is found in many biofertilized and microbial blends. So it's it's imperceptible at a thousand X and it just looks like little rods, which, you know, just like a lot of things do. Bacilli shaped, morphologically shaped bacteria are the most common. Thermobifida found in compost, rotting organic matter, mushroom substrate, 
and they're aerobic thermophiles I prefer. So unless you've got hot compost, you're not going to be seeing these things uh, and you're doing it while it's hot. When it senesces, these things literally disappear. And it tells you a few things, doesn't it? So this is a Johnson Sioux compost. Uh, bacillus and bacillaceae. These are aerobic facultative. This is your um, lactobacillus, your um, secundae uh, bacillus. All of those those iterations and IMO cousins of um, lactic acid bacteria. This is that category, and this is the the, the bacillus shape morphologically is the most common. Cocci are supposed to be there, totally, totally, but it's less common. And it, it, when we do the actual DNA work. And so these are aerobic and facultative. They're ubiquitous and nearly indestructible. In fact, your composting efforts do nothing. So, and it's also critical to, uh, to EEM. So uh, like I said, lactobacillus, you know, lacto milk. Bacillus subtilis is the hay bacillus. Have you heard of it? It was discovered in the 1800s, been around for a little bit, pretty exciting, but... It's a potent fungicide and bactericide. Kind of funny. It's a facultative anaerobe that forms biofilms. Oh, is that the thing that formed the biofilm in your compost tea brewer? Uh-huh, maybe. Because so many of us are making hot compost with hay and straw or alfalfa. You guys get that? You guys get that? You guys get that? You catch it? Did you catch it? You wonder why no one seems to be able to get their compost to be fungal. Right? You with me? So they are literally putting a potent fungicide, bactericide into their compost and seeing results that are less than exciting. <sighs> so it's effective biocontrol. It creates auxins, tryptophan, and uh, endolacetic acid, stimulating root growth and immunological alertness. It can look great when we apply it to our plants, but we have all these other things that are going on, so we got to think about this. So this is from my 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 microscopy book. Uh, again, it can form chains, it can clump, but it is still in those bacilli rod shapes. So. This is why it takes another level of understanding, another level of application and uh, holistic testing in regenerative soil microscopy to, to map that out. Pseudomonas, the top re th three reasons why they are important, they're beneficial and aerobic. They're found in the soil, water, and endophytically. Pseudomonas florensis is the most commonly known plant, um, plant growth promoting rhizobacteria. So it, it's in the soil, it's around the roots, it's in the water, it's inside the plant. It is part of the feedback loop of cycling just like E. coli is. Remember, if you've been with me for a while, you know that E. coli has millions of species. There's a handful, like six, that are pathogens. E. coli means like mammal or organism <laughs> because literally most of them are commensual, harmless, and bene or beneficial. And there's only a few that are bad and they only appear in those pathogenic conditions or come from pathogenic conditions where they, by the conditions, been forced to take up those, those uh, pathogenic qualities, which are literally fragments of genes in their environment that they take up. 
So it's really incredibly important to understand the power of these microbes. Uh, this helps for through bio through t attacking the ability for other microbes to work with their iron. It it literally destroys other other microbes. So that's how it's biological control. Now I talked about it earlier. I'm so glad we have arrived. We're here. Rhodocytomonas palustris, purple non-sulfur bacteria. They are such problem solvers. They're found in mud, water, soil, and endophytically. They're facultative anaerobes that feed on light carbon, CO2, electrons, and exchanges of energy in their environment. So they bombard things with energy until they give them what they want. Yep, and they're a key ingredient in EM So and Bukashi. So they are incredibly important. This is what they actually look like. There's only one other person that's actually documented images of Rhodocytomonas plustris online and got, been able to show the characteristic red color. It's wild. Uh, we all can do this. This is what I teach people how to do. Now, archaea. Archaea are bacterial lookalikes. They're extremophiles, but they're literally found as endophytes in the soil, in the water, and they're not culturable. They can't culture them in the lab. So, you know, when Elaine Ingham back in the day would be like, well, you can't, you really do this in a lab. This has to be done in the soil. This has to be, well, this, we couldn't even see them until recently. It takes a specific test to differentiate between the cell walls. And then it's so difficult to really get an assay of who's there. The only way we've been able to do it is with a full DNA sequence workup. But they're there and they're critical to cycling. And when we do compost, they're there. When we do the biofertilizer mixes, they are there too in the IMO components. And so all of these microbes from the ones we don't understand, and by the way, let's just be totally 100% clear here. We know one to 2% of the bacteria in the soil. I'm not gonna, that's why people get all confused. They're like, we know 5% of the microbes. We know the there's different percentages for different things. In total, it's like three to 5%. Some people like John Kemp, that's like 10%, right? It's one to 2% of the bacteria are known in soil. Our microscopes only go to a certain level and then past that they can't see and there's bacteria smaller than that, that we can't see. These things, every time we look for them, we find them. When we're trying to figure out why a cycle works, how this is transformed in this thing into this thing, like new chemistry, right? It's biochemistry. That's always, it's always that. And there's some physical chemistry, you know, physical geology. And, but often when we look closely, super closely, we find that it's aided and sped up by the microbes. Now, We've gotten through the, the 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 smallest members, the bacteria and the bacteria look alike archaea. Let's go to fungi. So they are the architects and the managers of the world's ecosystems, the builders of soil, the primary cyclers of carbon, and you know over ten times more CO two than we release. Uh, well, depending on the numbers, all of the numbers around CO two are guesstimations. Everything because they can't accurately measure it. It's all models. So depending on your model, the, the fungi releases 10 times to three times to uh, a, a, like 12 times. 
depending on which numbers you use. And so what is clear is fungi is the primary release of CO2 and it powers all the plants photosynthesis because they need CO2 to do the sugars and the whole thing of formation of soil that we talked about and all the other products and the citric acid and blah, 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 you know, all of that. They need that because we killed the soil. We talked about this last time we killed the fungi, which means there was a lot more cycling, but because there was a lot more photosynthesis, the CO2 released in place was absorbed right there and then by the plants. And 50% of CO2, you know, processed by plants is internally from microbes. So it's a whole other conversation. But my point is, is that there's a lot more carbon cycling in a fungal world, in a photosynthetically charged world, a world with grasslands and forests that are healthy and coastlines that are healthy, but it looks like less carbon when you test it because it's a bigger engine and it was the same amount of fuel. Well, there's more fuel being released because more fun fungal cycling, but the engine is so big that it, you don't notice it. So you take the same amount of fuel, you shrink the engine of photosynthesis and it chokes just like you would with your lawnmower, you know, or your car. So all plants have anaphytic fungi and almost all plant roots have fungal relationships critical to their survival. So all plants are fungal. Some people are like, oh, well, these are non-mycorrhizal. Yeah, mycorrhizal, rhizal, root. And that's, that's of what we've observed. There's so many things that we've just figured out. We figured out that brassicas, despite, despite being non-mycorrhizal, just need, need a little bit of trichoderma and then they suddenly are. Huh. Partnerships of microbes create a synergy that allows things to happen that normally wouldn't in our plants. Huh. Does that sound like a special new thing or does that sound like the plant evolved that way originally and it's only due to us sterilizing the soil and killing our planet's fundamental potential for all fertility that led to that. And to call it something else really cheats us of the truth in an authentic moment, a pivot that we all need to embrace. Bring back the microbes, sequester the carbon, bring the soils back, bring the photosynthesis back, bring the fungi back, have the cycles become robust robust levels of CO2 being cycled, robust levels of oxygen. So much so that, oh yeah, the past 200 years of petrochemical release, which are all from organic sources originally, gets cycled in stride. And we have the math. I mean, the last ice age was created by by plants, uh, Azoa, plants like aquatic plants floating on the surface of, of, of the oceans. So this idea of plants in water, because they, they sequester 10 times the carbon and release 10 times the amount of oxygen, is, is literally the pathway for change. So we have all the pieces, we have all the math. It just shows how disingenuous the people are like in the greenwashed movement. You know what I mean? That they won't even look to soil properly. They won't even acknowledge photosynthesis. They won't even address the pollution on the coastlines, how it killed the kelp, how it's killing the microalgae, how it's imbalancing the pH. I could go on and on. Um, but again, that's a bigger picture. 
fungi here because it all connects, it all connects, but fungi here, it's externalized digestion and they release enzymes and acids that absorb the digested result. So they take on the pigment of their environment, but they also just like a lion kill in the middle of the savanna, all the other things show up. And so you'll have bacteria harvesting the, the, the phosphorus right there as it's being made soluble. So you'll flip on your epifluorescence light on your microscope and you'll see the bacteria around the, the, the fungi is all glowing too. And it's, it's fantastic. So decomposers of wood lignin, fibers, materials, cellulose, soil, humus, um, they eat what back most bacteria do not. They, they kind of do different things that there is an overlap always because if one's not there, the other can fill that role quite often. And so th this is the highway of mycelium that everyone talks about in the soil. It's not just mycorrhizal. There's the decomposition. There's a saprophytic. All of these things grow and die and grow and die as the structure. And then they become the actual living and dead highways that the bacteria and, and other fungi travel along. So... And not only that, like the highways and structure and everything can be reabsorbed, reanimated, all like it's all it's all on the table. The fungi is incredible like that. Fungi creates chitinase so it can digest parts of itself and then take those same nutrients and grow it over here. It's it's amazing. Um, and so we have to think about though, when we talk about fungi, which fungi, because a lot of people get it all mixed up and say, fungi, fungi, it's all fungi for me, but there's saprophytic fungi, there's mycorrhizal fungi, there's endosymbiotes, there's endophytes, um, and then there's parasitic or patho pathogenic fungi. I've wanted us to differentiate between the saprophytes and then the saprophyte endophytes, because they're slashies there, like the model slash actor, right? <laughs> uh, and then mycorrhizal fungi, which is all on its own. Mycorrhizal fungi is not like in your compost. It won't come through your compost. When we look at those happy nematodes and happy testate amoebae, when we're finding our complete compost and you're like, look at all those spores in its belly. There's your spores, you know, and, and and they will eat an entire full large spore. And you're like, wait a second. Well, this could be good. They're eating the oo spores from my oomocytes and cycling that and fixing this water mold problem I have. Yes, they are. But this is why we let these things go, get it so it's good. And you do your mycorrhizal inoculant separate because it's a completely different pathway. And because nine over 90% of the plants on the earth partner with our muscular mycorrhizal fungi, you gotta do it. You can't get around it until you get it to be always there in your soil. And that takes making it regenerative. That takes doing very specific things and then do, knowing how to test so you can verify that that's happening. They're the architects of our living systems. Now, something that people don't talk about often is yeasts. They talk about yeasts as if they're bad things. Uh, soil yeasts, compost yeasts, um, yeasts that are inside our plants. This is the reason why there's wine. 
the grapes are covered in yeast and then the yeast is inside the plant. Sugarcane has over a thousand different types of yeast inside it. Okay. And I hinted at it already before they eat the sugars and release CO2. And you're like, yeah, that's alcohol, Matt. Does it inside the plant and that feeds its photosynthesis. So it's everywhere. It's part of everything. It's part of decomposition and it's endophytic. So again, those saprophytes that are endophytes, yeast is one of them. And it, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, literally beer yeast. This was found inside corn, inside sugar cane, and it's inside dozens and dozens and dozens of plants tested. They haven't tested every plant, but every plant they test, they find yeasts. Uh, and then a lot of times it's like they have to go down to like, you know, individuals like this with DNA testing to figure out which yeasts. But there's so many that chances are you have the cervicea yeast in there too. Or an IMO of it, which is the cousin variant of it. Whenever I'm saying IMOs, I'm saying indigenous microorganisms. It's it's a, it's a, it's a term that uh, Korean natural yeah, Korean natural farming popularized. You guys having fun? Let me know in the comments. So these are biofertilizers. They live inside the plant. They release nutrients. They they do not pro produce protease, so it cannot use the nitrates, so it's not going to bother those. That's why lactic acid bacteria, lactobacillus, is so useful. <clears throat> and they can feed on a variety of things. And then mycorrhizal fungi, they're dynamic biofertilizers. Bio they're root extenders, enhancers. They're rhizophagy cycle boosters. They are go-between the protector and the rhizospheric economy. They enhance photosynthesis. They trigger the immune system of the plants. And they filter, buffer, and translate toxins. They deal with soil salinity and high temperatures. And they, they make the plant hardier. They help with protein biosynthesis so that the plant can, can actually form its proteins better. So it helps it form its amino acids. And so it gives it energy as it does this. And then it forms these energy reserves, these lipids and the arbuscules, they literally are reabsorbed in hyphalysis. So endomycorrhizal, this is what everyone's using. Unless you're doing landscaping and, and or high altitude like native plants, everything is going to be endomycorrhizal. Uh, all of our orchards, our gardens, it's, it's, it's arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. And then ecto, that's, you know, Douglas fir, alder, pine, poplar, manzanita, beech, chestnut, very specific. So you might be seeing that in Yosemite. Um, there are things that prefer both ecto and endo, eucalyptus, poplar, willow, aspen, cottonwood, alder. It's this very small group though. And orchids require their own thing. Ericoid mycorrhizae, that's the blueberries. And huckleberries, lignanberries, rhododendrons, you can, and cranberries. So that's more acidic. And then there's, of course, the non-mycorrhizal. This is something that I talk about, but most people haven't heard about. Amaranth, beets, shard, they are going to keep mycorrhizal fungi at bay and keep your soil alkaline and oxidized. Brassicas are reducers, and you can use trichoderma to let in our muscular mycorrhizal fungi. But buckwheat, rhubarb, dock, 
Claytonia, um, Purslane, Mullen, these things are going to fight the acidification of soil. They're going to fight the reduction of soil. So it's going to make it hard to garden. They are weeds. And no microfilter to protect them means that they hyperaccumulate anything. And so these are the things that people are using to bioremediate because they uptake it and embody it. I don't want you to uptake and embody these things though from your plants. So we need to know what's in our soil and if and before we're like eating it, you know, especially if we're not doing things that are mycorrhizal that can be protected. I grew giant amaranth for years and it was because the soil was so oxidized uh, and alkaline in California. Now, arborescular mycorrhizal fungi, this is my drawing of it. Uh, we'll get to other forms here. Um, it's it's going to be part of this large group of different fungi that partner with roots that, I mean, it depends on what area you are. It depends on what climate. It depends on what, what stressors you have. You're going to choose the mycorrhizae that works for you. So... Funnily, Formus, Masea, that you'll see this in options for you to 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 work with in in um, biofertilizers, in inoculants. This is great for alkaline and arid climates. So, hint, hint. If you are in an alkaline and arid climate, this is the time to write down FM fungi, Funnily, Formus, Masea, so that you can make sure that your next inoculant has this in it. And look at the bottom, Penny Bacillus. That is an ideal synergistic bacterial partnership found in nature. So that you could get that as well in inoculant with both. That I've seen that. You can get it. You just got to look into this. And this boosts flower, root, pod, seed, and fruit production. It's awesome for drought resilience and high salinity. So it transforms heavy metals and toxins into harmless or less harmful forms. This is your, your, your game winner if you're alkaline arid. If you're tropical and subtropical, write down Gigaspora margarita or screenshot this image. And that's great for fruit production. If you're, um, and if you are just in a general area, Glomus monosporum is great if you want to add that to the mix. Because remember, I keep talking about how things are ephemeral, how things have multiple microbes in the same nodule. The arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi has a relationship of three days to two weeks and then it's gone. So when we take images of it, we're taking snapshots of a moving picture. So so that's that's why it's so critical to have context and understanding of time frame when we're talking about these microbes and their interaction with your your soil and your roots. So you you want multiple forms to because they will release at different times and they will have different effects that are subtly different. So you want a, a mix, but you also want to go with the game winners. Let's say you're an acid acidic reduced soils let's say you're crystal our friend crystal my student who's in australia with 5.5 ph very acidic and reduced soils this is paraglomus brasilianum this is and she's got a lot of compost that she's put in so this is perfect for her because this will protect against heavy metals this will 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 give the plant all the typical arbuscular mycorrhizal the the previously mentioned benefits of expanding the root zone 10,000 times more phosphorus uptake the protection the filtration the buffering all of it 
but it's for acidic and reduced soils. So my friends, you know, and the heather up in the heath, you know, you know, in, in Northern Scotland, you know what I mean? Like different areas that the soil is naturally acidic, Montana, you know, like, like we have to recognize, I actually had a student who is Montana. His soil is super acidic as well, was super alkaline and he put them together and his garden was amazing, but he didn't like know until he like tested and then he tested and he goes, can I just do that? And it worked so well. And he was like, this is amazing. But <laughs> it's wild when we know why things work, because when things change, we can test again and be like, oh, this is different now. Something's changed. Should we be drinking this well water? You know, all those kinds of things. This is why we test and test and test. But this is also why we communicate specifics. And then um, Clarioides etunicatum is ideal for acidic soils. And then Micrococcus unanensis. This is something that you can see in uh, an actual mix of, of microbes in a biofertilizer mix. And again, this is for low pH. This is for those Australian soils, those acidic soils. And then Septoglomus deserticola, desert, desert anyone? Yeah, it's high pH, alkaline, semi-area to arid soils, buffers them against drought and high salinity, boosts nitrogen fixation in plants. So you're like, oh, wow, that's the California one. Septoglomus deserticola, let's go Texas in California, Arizona, New Mexico. We got this, right? Well, maybe not Northern California completely, um, but maybe actually, because their soils mostly pretty alkaline and oxide, even Northern up there, I remember. So alkaline, that's me. Uh, raise your hand if you're alkaline. Let me hear it. Uh, many of us have beaten up soil. Gordon, I see you. Yeah. Lydia. Yes, yes, yes. I see your hands. And it, we, we, we recognize that most of us, hey, Mike, I see you too. Thank you for being here. Are in a position where we've lost the energy where it's been oxidized, it's lost the microbes. The biology has been stripped, burnt out by tillage, chemicals, and it could be chemicals in the rain. It could be generational trauma due to, to the environment from you know the way that the watershed was managed by the California government. Yeah, you better believe it. Go look up the way that they've used basically key line geometry to and pinpoints take away all the water from the highest areas and we wonder why you know the foothills burn so now is the time to take notes all right so rhizophages arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi this is found in almost all soils it is the dominant arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi remember i said you want to mix this is the one to have as the top member of your mix and then bring in all the special different variations to, to support that because it's dominant. It is robust and it, it totally boosts your nitrogen fixation, promotes crazy root growth, nutrient absorption, bigger yield, overall plant growth. It is the winner. So you'll see this everywhere. Um, and this is what it looks like just as it's beginning. And you saw images earlier of, of what this looks like as well, but this is, this is just the beginning. And then, there's a broad range of soil types rhizophages claris can work with. Bacillus pubuli 
um, is also an option. That's, that's something that you can buy. Rhizophagus aggregatus. This is alkaline and oxidized. Again, the desertified, the sandy, calcareous, calcareous. So like your, your really difficult soils, um, uh, calicky clays and all those kinds of things. Th this is the one to partner with. It prevents root growth, robust root extension. Remember, fungi is the thing that's bursting through concrete, breaking things up that seem like they're permanent fixtures of our world. And then ectomycorrhizal fungi. So we are still in fungi. Um, we, we have to recognize that ectomycorrhizal fungi is the one that is going to extend your roots for the upper alpine regions of the world, high altitude where it's cold and and temperate, and uh, even all the way extending to the like the edges of the tundra. So it's the native plants, it's the pines, it's the woody uh, timber species. And so it's very important for those people. Um, but we're not going to get into that today. So protozoa, um, they're key to cycling the nutrients. Their excess nutrients are released as manures, as we've talked about. And then they're eaten by predators. And, and they look so cool. You can see those spores inside the testate amoebae, the bottom left one, uh, the amoeba and the bottom left is really clear. And then those are spores. See how they could fit easily into the mouth of that large testate amoebae, amoeba. And you can see that there's little bits of bacteria already inside it. And you can see it here in the mix. You can see a lot of the things we've talked about today from spores to amoebae to actinobacteria to fungal hyphae and then ciliates ciliates look like little salmon but there's micro aerophilic ciliates if you look up the word micro aerophilic ciliates you'll find an article on how they're there are ciliates that are key to taking soils from facultative and close to anaerobic into fully aerobic so these are things that have been lambasted things that have been demonized as bad and yes when there's tons of them it indicates waterlogged conditions and and it, of course but again we are doing that thing where we're like oh the conditions waterlogged conditions these microbes are bad and that kind of generalization gets us into trouble nematodes nematodes they're non-sedimented worms they're microscopic they control the protozoa. They're grazing on the protozoa, the, the, the bacteria and the fungi and the organic matter and other nematode populations. There's actually larger nematodes that are predators and the smaller nematodes that feed on the fungi, that feed on the bacteria. And the and and so it really and also depends if they have like a tooth. There's a bunch of the different things in their mouths. Um, and so they remineralize the soil by releasing in their manures all the trapped nutrition in the lower levels of the soil food web. You can see its belly glowing here with 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 fungi. So this was a really fungal compost. This was a fungal feeder, and its digestion is full of phosphorus-bearing fungi. And like I said, there are different mouth parts. This is from the book Regenerative Soil. Uh, we go into even greater detail and have a lot of examples in regenerative soil microscopy like this. 
And as you can see, the generalized is useful, but the real thing changes it fundamentally. Root feeders, bacterial feeders, their mouth parts are very different. Um, but there's some nuance here. There's switcher nematodes. They can feed on multiple things depending on what's there. And <laughs> in a lot of ways, it's really what they can get their mouths around because when they're hungry, they're hungry for real. Uh, and then in dark field, um, people have said they often appear invisible, but uh, if you do it just right, they appear absolutely incredible, very clean and clear. And this is a fungal feeding nematode, um, but it looks also, um, we have to be very aware that there is a, a relationship between the aporcelamus and fungal feeders because they are using the same the, the, the same mechanism to puncture the the hyphae as they do the root. It's just the strength of it and the muscles around that that indicate whether it's a root feeder or not, which means that fungal feeders most likely can feed on very young roots and root hairs. So that, and yeah, it's really important to have that kind of understanding to, to, to be open-minded because there's two to three million species of nematodes. There's lots of lookalikes. They can eat what they get their mouths around. And um, they've recently shown that um, they can change. They can mutate. They can take on these, uh, like they can, they, they, they can combine different attributes from, and you can have a collection of attributes. And so it's really important to understand that we need to look at the mouth parts. We need to look at the ratios. And we need to look at the way things are cycling to diagnose it, to do the work of regenerative microscopy. But for our conversation here, I'm getting caught up in like the microscopy work I'm doing right now for this course. But but they are key to cycling. There's something that we we do understand, but it is there's still a lot of unknowns. And that's why my, the microscopy course and work I've done has been so critical. Microarthropods, these are the shredders. These are the things that break things up so the bacteria and fungi can get at the nutrition. And again, they're like the teeth of the digestion of the, of, of the soil. And so they're breaking things up. They're opening it up for the microbiology, the tiny, uh, the, the bacteria and fungi, just like in our guts, to break it down. And by the way, there's a huge overlap of what's in our guts and also in the plants and also in compost, and also in the soil. And that's really what it's about. And then earthworms, of course, we know earthworms. Their guts have so many of the key microbes that we need for our soil and for our plants. So earthworms are incredibly important for inoculating the soil, but they need to be part of a mixture of things, most often because they tend to make bacterial dominant, slightly alkaline worm castings. Macroarthropods, these are the things that we know, the ants, the spiders, the bees, they have digestion that is relying upon microbes as well. And so they're doing all the work, they're doing the shredding and for the microarthropods to continue. And then other worms like potworms, right? These are giant worms compared to the other worms, small mammals and birds, they're all contributing to making it possible for the lower levels of the soil food web to be promoted. Their manures have things like enterobacter, things like E. coli, have things like rhizobia, 
that are continuing the decomposition process and just changing forms, just changing behaviors, depending on where they are in the cycle. The soil food web provides the ideal nutrition and protection for all plants. And it, it really starts with the microbes and not them generally, but them specifically. And so the microbes have the greatest effect on pH and EH and nutrient solubility in the rhizosphere. Mycorrhizae have preferential bacterial partners. That's something that people don't know about. Uh, the people who do biofertilizers absolutely do. And the studies, there's plenty of studies on it as well. But my book is the one that has them written out. The soil food web is the key to soil health structure and fertility. And because soil health is the key to the plant health, plant health is the key to animal health and people health and our cultural health. All of it comes back to the microbes in our soil, their ratios, the types, their numbers, and if they have the food to do the work they need to do and if the conditions are right. Because, you know, you can have compacted soil, blah, blah, blah. Things don't work out. We got to do our work. So what do we get out of this? We get soluble nutrients and minerals, amino acids, humic compounds, intermediate chelators, and siderophores. We get plant growth hormones. This is what you're going to have more buds, more flower. You're going to have more robust roots. You have bushier plants. Um, and then you're also going to be able to cycle things faster. You're going to be able to uptake calcium at a thousand times. And it's going to change the, immuno the immunological response to your plants. They're going to uh, be able to fight off pathogens. They're going to be able to protect themselves against pests. And they're going to be able to develop longstanding partnerships in the soil that make it so that they have the highest nutrient density. But there's more. Uh, if you feel overwhelmed at this point, this is why I have like, you know, courses and books and my books are references. Um, I know that was a lot of information, but each component leads back to a specific release of nutrition that feeds our plant in a specific way that it needs. So it's a framework of understanding that leads directly to action and reaction. So we know what to take action to take and we know what we should see and how to test for it. This is the holistic context. And it starts with the cycles. And it continues forward into a hands-on and micro to macro understanding. So what can we expect from this understanding? Well, like I've said, pest infection, virus and disease immunity, high nutrient density, faster maturation rates and higher yields. Plants, when they can spend their energy on growing, do it. When they're in the Goldilocks range, they thrive and they smell better, they taste better. And, and they give us the medicinal effects that we desire. And then just financially, we make more money because we're not using the fungicides, we're not using insecticides. And then the fertilizers, we can dramatically decrease even natural fertilizers, even certified organic or even manures. We can cycle in situ. And so that creates much less work over time. If you want to learn more, join us next Thursday, same time, same place. 
Thank you for being part of this community. Grow abundantly, learn daily, and live regeneratively.